BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Twilight of the Idols, or How to Philosophize with the Hammer, by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Anthony M. Ludovici. Translator's Preface The Twilight of the Idols was written towards the end of the summer of 1888. Its composition seems to have occupied only a few days, so few indeed that, in Ecce Homo, page 118, Nietzsche says he hesitates to give their number, but in any case we know it was completed on the 3rd of September in Sils Maria. The manuscript which was dispatched to the printers on the 7th of September bore the title, Idle Hours of a Psychologist. This, however, was abandoned in favor of the present title, while the work was going through the press. During September and the early part of October 1888, Nietzsche added to the original contents of the book by inserting the whole section entitled Things the Germans Lack, and aphorisms 32-43 through 43 of skirmishes in a war with the age. And the book, as it now stands, represents exactly the form in which Nietzsche intended to publish it in the course of the year. 1889. Unfortunately, its author was already stricken down with illness when the work first appeared at the end of January 1889, and he was denied the joy of seeing it run into nine editions, of one thousand each, before his death in 1900. Of the Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche says in Ecce Homo, page 118, quote, If anyone should desire to obtain a rapid sketch of how everything before my time was standing on its head, he should begin reading me in this book. That which is called idols on the title page is simply the old truth that has been believed in hitherto. In plain English, the twilight of the idols means that the old truth is on its last legs. Unquote. Certain it is that, for a rapid survey of the whole of Nietzsche's doctrine, no book, save perhaps the section entitled Of Old and New Tables in Thus Spake Zarathustra, could be of more real value than the Twilight of the Idols. Here Nietzsche is quite at his best. He is ripe for the marvelous feat of the transvaluation of all values. Nowhere is his language, that marvelous weapon, which in his hand became at once so supple and so murderous, more forceful and more condensed. 
nowhere are his thoughts more profound. But all this does not by any means imply that this book is the easiest of Nietzsche's works. On the contrary, I very much fear that, unless the reader is well prepared, not only in Nietzscheism, but also in the habit of grappling with uncommon and elusive problems, a good deal of the contents of this work will tend rather to confuse than to enlighten him in regard to what Nietzsche actually wishes to make clear in these pages. How much prejudice, for instance, how many traditional and deep-seated opinions must be uprooted, if we are to see even so much as an important note of interrogation in the section entitled The Problem of Socrates, not to speak of such sections as Morality is the Enemy of Nature, the Four Great Errors, etc. The errors exposed in these sections have a tradition of two thousand years behind them, and only a fantastic dreamer could expect them to be eradicated by a mere casual study of these pages. Indeed, Nietzsche himself looked forward only to a gradual change in the general view of the questions he discussed. He knew only too well what the conversion of light heads was worth, and what kind of man would probably be the first to rush into his arms, and, grand psychologist that he was, he guarded himself beforehand against bad company by means of his famous warning, quote, The first adherents of a creed do not prove anything against it, unquote. To the aspiring student of Nietzsche, however, it ought not to be necessary to become an immediate convert in order to be interested in the treasure of thought which Nietzsche here lavishes upon us. For such a man, it will be quite difficult enough to regard the questions raised in this work as actual problems. Once, however, he has succeeded in doing this, and has given his imagination time to play round these questions as problems. The particular turn or twist that Nietzsche gives to their elucidation may then perhaps strike him, not only as valuable, but as absolutely necessary. With regard to the substance of the Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche says in Ecce Homo, page 119, quote, There is the waste of an all-too-rich autumn in this book. You trip over truths. You even crush some to death. There are too many of them. Unquote. And what are these truths? They are things that are not yet held to be true. They are the utterances of a man who, as a single exception, escaped for a while the general insanity of Europe, with its blind idealism in the midst of squalor, with its unscrupulous praise of so-called progress, while it stood knee-deep in the belittlement of man, and with its vulgar levity in the face of effeminacy and decay, they are the utterances of one who voiced the hopes, the aims, and the realities of another world. Not of an ideal world, not of a world beyond, but of a real world, of this world regenerated and reorganized upon a sounder, a more virile, and a more orderly basis. In fact, of a perfectly possible world, one that has already existed in the past and could exist again, if only the stupendous revolution of a transvaluation of all values were made possible. This, then, is the nature of the truths uttered by this one sane man in the whole of Europe at the end of last century, and when, owing to his unequal struggle against the overwhelming hostile forces of his time, his highly sensitive personality was at last forced to surrender itself to the enemy and become one with them, that is to say, insane. 
at least the record of his sanity had been safely stored away, beyond the reach of time and change, in the volumes which constitute his life-work. Anthony M. Ludovici Narrator's Note The translator's preface is cut short here, since in the volume as published, the note also addressed the other works by Nietzsche also included within this same volume, within Nietzsche's collected works. I have omitted the translator's prefacatory remarks with regard to the other works included within the printed volume, but not within this recording. End narrator's note. End translator's preface. Preface to maintain a cheerful attitude of mind in the midst of a gloomy and exceedingly responsible task is no slight artistic feat. And yet, what could be more necessary than cheerfulness? Nothing ever succeeds which exuberant spirits have not helped to produce. Surplus power alone is the proof of power, a transvaluation of all values, this note of interrogation which is so black, so huge, that it casts a shadow even upon him who affixes it is a task of such fatal import that he who undertakes it is compelled every now and then to rush out into the sunlight in order to shake himself free from an earnestness that becomes crushing, far too crushing. This end justifies every means, every event on the road to it is a windfall. Above all, war. War has always been the great policy of all spirits who have penetrated too far into themselves, or who have grown too deep. A wound stimulates the recuperative powers. For many years a maxim, the origin of which I withhold from learned curiosity, has been my motto. In crescunt animi, viracit volnere virtus. At other times... Another means of recovery which is even more to my taste is to cross-examine idols. There are more idols than realities in the world. This constitutes my evil eye for this world. It is also my evil ear. To put questions in this quarter with a hammer, and to hear, perchance, that well-known hollow sound which tells of blown-out frogs. What a joy this is! for one who has ears even behind his ears, for an old psychologist and pied piper like myself, in whose presence precisely that, which would fain be silent, must betray itself. Even this treatise, as its title shows, is above all a recreation, a ray of sunshine, a leap sideways of a psychologist in his leisure moments, Maybe, too, a new war. And are we again cross-examining new idols? This little work is a great declaration of war, and with regard to the cross-examining of idols, this time it is not the idols of the age, but eternal idols, which are here struck with a hammer as with a tuning fork. There are certainly no idols which are older, more convinced, and more inflated. Neither are there any more hollow. 
This does not alter the fact that they are believed in more than any others. Besides, they are never called idols, at least, not the most exalted among their number. Friedrich Nietzsche Turin, the 30th of September, 1888 On the day when the first book of the Transvaluation of All Values was finished. End Preface This recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 1 Maxims and Missiles 1. Idleness is the parent of all psychology. What? Is psychology then a vice? 2. Even the pluckiest among us has but seldom the courage of what he really knows. 3. Aristotle says that in order to live alone a man must be either an animal or a god. The third alternative is lacking. A man must be both a philosopher. 4. All truth is simple. Is not this a double lie? 5. Once for all, I wish to be blind to many things. Wisdom sets bounds even to knowledge. 6. A man recovers best from his exceptional nature, his intellectuality, by giving his animal instincts a chance. 7. Which is it? Is man only a blunder of God, or is God only a blunder of man? 8. From the military school of life. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. 9. Help thyself, then everyone will help thee. A principle of neighbor love. 10. A man should not play the coward to his deeds. He should not repudiate them once he has performed them. Pangs of conscience are indecent. 11. Can a donkey be tragic, to perish beneath a load that one can neither bear nor throw off? This is the case of the philosopher. 12. If a man knows the wherefore of his existence, then the manner of it can take care of itself. Man does not aspire to happiness, only the Englishman does that. 13. Man created woman. Out of what? Out of a rib of his god, of his ideal. 14. What? Art thou looking for something? Thou wouldst fain multiply thyself tenfold, a hundredfold? Thou seekest followers, seek ciphers. 15. Posthumous men, like myself, are not so well understood as men who reflect their age. 
but they are heard with more respect. In plain English, we are never understood, hence our authority. 16. Among women, truth? Oh, you do not know truth. Is it not an outrage on all our podures? 17. There is an artist after my own heart, modest in his needs. He really wants only two things, his bread and his art. Panim et Sirsun. 18. He who knows not how to plant his will in things, at least endows them with some meaning. That is to say, he believes that a will is already present in them, a principle of faith. 19. What? Ye chose virtue and the heaving breast, and at the same time ye squint covetously at the advantages of the unscrupulous? But with virtue ye renounce all advantages. Paren, to be nailed to an anti-Semite's door. End paren. 20. The perfect woman perpetuates literature as if it were a petty vice, as an experiment, en passant, and looking about her all the while to see whether anybody is noticing her, hoping that somebody is noticing her. 21. One should adopt only those situations in which one is in no need of sham virtues, but rather, like the tightrope dancer on his tightrope, in which one must either fall or stand or escape. 22. Quote, Evil men have no songs. Unquote. How is it that the Russians have songs? 23. German intellect. For eighteen years, this has been a contradictio in adjecto. 24. By seeing the beginning of things, a man becomes a crab. The historian looks backwards. In the end, he also believes backwards. 25. Contentment preserves one even from catching cold. Has a woman who knew that she was well-dressed ever caught cold? No, not even when she had scarcely a rag to her back. 26. I distrust all systematizers and avoid them. The will to a system shows a lack of honesty. 27. Man thinks woman profound. Why? Because he can never fathom her depths. Woman is not even shallow. 28. When woman possesses masculine virtues, she is enough to make you run away. When she possesses no masculine virtues, she herself runs away. 29. How often conscience had to bite in times gone by! What good teeth it must have had! And today, what is amiss? A dentist's question. 
30. Errors of haste are seldom committed singly. The first time a man always does too much, and precisely on that account he commits a second error, and then he does too little. 31. The trodden worm curls up. This testifies to its caution. It thus reduces its chances of being trodden on again, in the language of morality, humility. 32. There is such a thing as a hatred of lies and dissimulation, which is the outcome of a delicate sense of humor. There is also the selfsame hatred, but as the result of cowardice, insofar as falsehood is forbidden by divine law, too cowardly to lie. 33. What trifles constitute happiness? The sound of a bagpipe. Without music, life would be a mistake. The German imagines even God is a songster. 34. On ne peut penser et écrire qu'aussi. Flaubert. Here, I've got you, you nihilist. A sedentary life is the real sin against the Holy Spirit. Only those thoughts that come by walking have any value. 35. There are times when we psychologists are like horses and grow fretful. We see our own shadow rise and fall before us. The psychologist must look away from himself if he wishes to see anything at all. 36. Do we immoralists injure virtue in any way? Just as little as the anarchists injure royalty. Only since they have been shot at do princes sit firmly on their thrones once more. Moral. Morality must be shot at. 37. Thou runnest ahead. Dost thou do so as a shepherd or as an exception? A third alternative would be the fugitive. First question of conscience. 38. Art thou genuine, or art thou only an actor? Art thou a representative, or the thing represented itself? Finally, art thou perhaps simply a copy of an actor? Second question of conscience. 39. The disappointed man speaks. I sought for great men, but all I found were the apes of their ideal. 40. Art thou one who looks on, or one who puts his own shoulder to the wheel? Or art thou one who looks away, or who turns aside? Third question of conscience. 41. Wilt thou go in company, or lead, or go by thyself? A man should know what he desires, and that he desires something. Fourth question of conscience. 42. They were but rungs in my ladder. On them I made my ascent. To that end I had to go beyond them but they imagined that I wanted to lay myself to rest upon them.
43. What matters it whether I am acknowledged to be right? I am much too right. And he who laughs best today will also laugh last. 44. The formula of my happiness, a yea, a nay, a straight line, a goal. End chapter 1. This recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 2 The Problem of Socrates 1. In all ages the wisest have always agreed in their judgment of life. It is no good. At all times and places the same words have been on their lips, words full of doubt, full of melancholy, full of weariness of life, full of hostility to life. Even Socrates's dying words were, To live means to be ill a long while. I owe a cock to the god Esculapius. Even Socrates had had enough of it. What does that prove? What does it point to? Formerly people would have said, Oh, it has been said, and loudly enough, too, by our pessimists, loudest of all. Quote, in any case, there must be some truth in this. The consensus sapientium is a proof of truth. Unquote. Shall we say the same today? May we do so? Quote, in any case, there must be some sickness here. Unquote. We make reply. These great sages of all periods should first be examined more closely. Is it possible that they were, every one of them, a little shaky on their legs, effete, rocky, decadent? Does wisdom perhaps appear on earth after the manner of a crow attracted by a slight smell of carrion? 2. This irreverent belief that the great sages were decadent types first occurred to me precisely in regard to that case concerning which both learned and vulgar prejudice was most opposed to my view. I recognized Socrates and Plato as symptoms of decline, as instruments in the disintegration of Hellas, as pseudo-Greek, as anti-Greek. Paren, The Birth of Tragedy, 1872, and Paren. That consensus sapientium, as I perceived ever more and more clearly, did not in the least prove that they were right in the matter on which they agreed. It proved rather that these sages themselves must have been alike in some physiological particular, in order to assume the same negative attitude towards life, in order to be bound to assume that attitude. After all, Judgments and valuations of life, whether for or against, cannot be true. Their only value lies in the fact that they are symptoms. 
they can be considered only as symptoms. Per se, such judgments are nonsense. You must therefore endeavor by all means to reach out and try to grasp this astonishingly subtle axiom, that the value of life cannot be estimated. A living man cannot do so, because he is a contending party, or rather the very object in the dispute, and not a judge. Nor can a dead man estimate it, for other reasons. For a philosopher to see a problem in the value of life is almost an objection against him, a note of interrogation set against his wisdom, a lack of wisdom. What? Is it possible that all these great sages were not only decadents, but that they were not even wise? Let me, however, return to the problem of Socrates. To judge from his origin, Socrates belonged to the lowest of the low. Socrates was mob. You know, and you can still see it for yourself, how ugly he was. But ugliness, which in itself is an objection, was almost a refutation among the Greeks. Was Socrates really a Greek? Ugliness is not infrequently the expression of a thwarted development, or of development arrested by crossing. In other cases it appears as a decadent development. The anthropologists among the criminal specialists declare that the typical criminal is ugly. Monstrum in fronte, monstrum in animo. But the criminal is a decadent. Translator's footnote. It should be borne in mind that Nietzsche recognized two types of criminals, the criminal from strength and the criminal from weakness. This passage alludes to the latter. Aphorism 45, page 103, alludes to the former. End translator's note. Was Socrates a typical criminal? At all events, this would not clash with that famous physiognomist's judgment which was so repugnant to Socrates' friends. While on his way through Athens, a certain foreigner who was no fool at judging by looks told Socrates to his face that he was a monster, that his body harbored all the worst vices and passions. And Socrates replied simply, You know me, sir. 4. Not only are the acknowledged wildness and anarchy of Socrates's instincts indicative of decadence, but also that preponderance of the logical faculties and that malignity of the misshapen, which was his special characteristic. Neither should we forget those oral delusions, which were religiously interpreted as the demon of Socrates, Everything in him is exaggerated, buffo, caricature. His nature is also full of concealment, of ulterior motives, and of underground currents. I try to understand the idiosyncrasy from which the Socratic equation, reason equals virtue equals happiness, could have arisen. The weirdest equation ever seen, and one which was essentially opposed to all the instincts of the older Hellenes. 
5. With Socrates, Greek taste veers round in favor of dialectics. What actually occurs? In the first place, a noble taste is vanquished. With dialectics, the mob comes to the top. Before Socrates' time, dialectical manners were avoided in good society. They were regarded as bad manners. They were compromising. Young men were cautioned against them. All such proffering of one's reasons was looked upon with suspicion. Honest things, like honest men, do not carry their reasons on their sleeve in such a fashion. It is not good form to make a show of everything. That which needs to be proved cannot be worth much. Wherever authority still belongs to good usage, wherever men do not prove but command, the dialectician is regarded as a sort of clown. People laugh at him. They do not take him seriously. Socrates was a clown who succeeded in making men take him seriously. What, then, was the matter? 6. A man resorts to dialectics only when he has no other means to hand. People know that they excite suspicion with it, and that it is not very convincing. Nothing is more easily dispelled than a dialectical effect. This is proved by the experience of every gathering in which discussions are held. It can be only the last defense of those who have no other weapons. One must require to extort one's right, otherwise one makes no use of it. That is why the Jews were dialecticians. Reynard the Fox was a dialectician. What? And was Socrates one as well? 7. Is the Socratic irony an expression of revolt, of mob resentment? Does Socrates, as a creature suffering under oppression, enjoy his innate ferocity in the knife-thrusts of the syllogism? Does he wreak his revenge on the noblemen he fascinates? As a dialectician, a man has a merciless instrument to wield. He can play the tyrant with it. He compromises when he conquers with it. The dialectician leaves it to his opponent to prove that he is no idiot. He infuriates. He likewise paralyzes. The dialectician cripples the intellect of his opponent. Can it be that dialectics was only a form of revenge in Socrates? 8. I have given you to understand in what way Socrates was able to repel. Now it is all the more necessary to explain how he fascinated. One reason is that he discovered a new kind of agon, and that he was the first fencing master in the best circles in Athens. He fascinated by appealing to the combative instinct of the Greeks. He introduced a variation into the contests between men and youths. Socrates was also a great erotic. 9. But Socrates divined still more. He saw right through his noble Athenians. He perceived that his case, his peculiar case, was no exception, even in his time. 
the same kind of degeneracy was silently preparing itself elsewhere. Ancient Athens was dying out, and Socrates understood that the whole world needed him, his means, his remedy, his special artifice for self-preservation. Everywhere the instincts were in a state of anarchy, everywhere people were within an ace of excess. The monstrum in animo was the general danger. Quote, the instincts would play the tyrant. We must discover a counter-tyrant who is stronger than they. Unquote. On the occasion when that physiognomist had unmasked Socrates, and had told him what he was, a crater full of evil desires, the great master of irony let fall one or two words more, which provide the key to his nature. This is true, he said, but I overcame them all. How did Socrates succeed in mastering himself? His case was, at bottom, only the extreme and most apparent example of a state of distress which was beginning to be general, that state in which no one was able to master himself, and in which the instincts turned one against the other. As the extreme example of this state, he fascinated. His terrifying ugliness made him conspicuous to every eye. It is quite obvious that he fascinated still more as a reply, as a solution, as an apparent cure of this case. 10. When a man finds it necessary, as Socrates did, to create a tyrant out of reason, there is no small danger that something else wishes to play the tyrant. Reason was then discovered as a savior. Neither Socrates nor his patience were at liberty to be rational or not as they pleased. At that time it was de rigueur, it had become a last shift. The fanaticism with which the whole of Greek thought plunges into reason betrays a critical condition of things. Men were in danger. There were only two alternatives, either perish or else be absurdly rational. The moral bias of Greek philosophy from Plato onward is the outcome of a pathological condition as is also its appreciation of dialectics. Reason equals virtue equals happiness simply means we must imitate Socrates and confront the dark passions permanently with the light of day, the light of reason. We must at all costs be clever, precise, clear, all yielding to the instincts to the unconscious leads downward. 11. I have now explained how Socrates fascinated. He seemed to be a doctor, a savior. Is it necessary to expose the errors which lay in his faith in reason at any price? It is a piece of self-deception on the part of philosophers and moralists to suppose that they can extricate themselves from degeneration by merely waging war upon it. They cannot thus extricate themselves that which they choose as a means, as the road to salvation, is in itself again only an expression of degeneration. They only modify its mode of manifesting itself. They do not abolish it. Socrates was a misunderstanding. 
the whole of the morality of amelioration, that of Christianity as well, was a misunderstanding. The most blinding light of day, reason at any price, life made clear, cold, cautious, conscious, without instincts opposed to the instincts, was in itself only a disease, another kind of disease, and by no means a return to virtue, to health, and to happiness. To be obliged to fight the instincts, this is the formula of degeneration. As long as life is in the ascending line, happiness is the same as instinct. 12. Did he understand this himself, this most intelligent of self-deceivers? Did he confess this to himself in the end, in the wisdom of his courage before death? Socrates wished to die. Not Athens, but his own hand gave him the draught of hemlock. He drove Athens to the poisoned cup. Socrates is not a doctor, he whispered to himself. Death alone can be a doctor here. Socrates himself has only been ill a long while. End chapter 2 this recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 3 quote, Reason unquote, in Philosophy 1. You ask me what all idiosyncrasy is in philosophers? For instance, their lack of the historical sense, their hatred even of the idea of becoming, their Egyptianism. They imagine that they do honor to a thing by divorcing it from history subspecie eterni, when they make a mummy of it. All the ideas that philosophers have treated for thousands of years have been mummied concepts, nothing real has ever come out of their hands alive. These idolaters of concepts merely kill and stuff things when they worship. They threaten the life of everything they adore. Death, change, age, as well as procreation and growth, are in their opinion objections, even refutations. That which is cannot evolve, that which evolves is not. Now all of them believe, and even with desperation, in being. But, as they cannot lay hold of it, they try to discover reasons why this privilege is withheld from them. Quote, some merely apparent quality, some deception, must be the cause of our not being able to ascertain the nature of being 
where is the deceiver? Unquote. We have him, they cry rejoicing. It is sensuality. These senses, which in other things are so immoral, cheat us concerning the true world. Moral. We must get rid of the deception of the senses, of becoming, of history, of falsehood. History is nothing more than the belief in the senses, the belief in falsehood. Moral. We must say no to everything in which the senses believe. To all the rest of mankind, all that belongs to the people. Let us be philosophers, mummies, monototheists, grave-diggers. And above all, away with the body, this wretched ide fix of the senses, infected with all the faults of logic that exist, refuted, even impossible, although it be impudent enough to pose as if it were real. 2. With a feeling of great reverence I accept the name of Heraclitus. If the rest of the philosophic gang rejected the evidence of the senses, because the latter revealed a state of multifariousness and change, he rejected the same evidence, because it revealed things as if they possessed permanence and unity. Even Heraclitus did an injustice to the senses. The latter lie neither as the Eleatics believed them to lie, nor as he believed them to lie. They do not lie at all. The interpretations we give to their evidence is what first introduces falsehood into it. For instance, the lie of unity, the lie of matter, of substance, and of permanence. Reason is the cause of our falsifying the evidence of the senses. In so far as the senses show us a state of becoming, of transiency, and of change, they do not lie. But in declaring that being was an empty illusion, Heraclitus will remain eternally right. The, quote, apparent world, unquote, is the only world. The, quote, true world, unquote, is no more than a false adjunct thereto. 3. And what delicate instruments of observation we have in our senses. This human nose, for instance, of which no philosopher has yet spoken with reverence and gratitude, is, for the present, the most finely adjusted instrument at our disposal. It is able to register even such slight changes of movement as the spectroscope would be unable to record. Our scientific triumphs, at the present day, extend precisely so far as we have accepted the evidence of our senses, as we have sharpened and armed them and learn to follow them up to the end. What remains is abortive, and not yet science. That is to say, metaphysics, theology, psychology, epistemology, or formal science, or a doctrine of symbols like logic and its applied form, mathematics. In all these things, reality does not come into consideration at all, even as a problem just as little as does the question concerning the general value of such a convention of symbols as logic. 4. The other idiosyncrasy of philosophers is no less dangerous. It consists in confusing the last and the first things. 
they place that which makes its appearance last. Unfortunately, for it ought not appear at all, the highest concept, that is to say, the most general, the emptiest, the last cloudy streak of evaporating reality, at the beginning, as the beginning. This again is only their manner of expressing their veneration. The highest thing must not have grown out of the lowest. It must not have grown at all. Moral. Everything of the first rank must be causa sui. To have been derived from something else is as good as an objection. It sets the value of a thing in question. All superior values are of the first rank. All the highest concepts, that of being, of the absolute, of goodness, of truth, and of perfection, all these things cannot have been evolved. They must, therefore, be causa sui. All these things cannot, however, be unlike one another. They cannot be opposed to one another. Thus, they attain to their stupendous concept, God, the last, most attenuated and emptiest thing, is postulated as the first thing, as the absolute cause, as ens realissimum. Fancy humanity having to take the brain diseases of morbid cobweb spinners seriously, and it has paid dearly for having done so. 5. Against this let us set the different manner in which we, you observe that I'm courteous enough to say we, conceive the problem of the error and deceptiveness of things. Formerly people regarded change and evolution, in general, as the proof of appearance, as a sign of the fact that something must be there that leads us astray. Today, on the other hand, we realize that precisely as far as the rational bias forces us to postulate unity, identity, permanence, substance, cause, materiality, and being, we are, in a measure, involved in error, driven necessarily to error. However certain we may feel, as the result of a strict examination of the matter, that the error lies here. It is just the same here as with the motion of the sun. In its case, it was our eyes that were wrong. In the matter of the concepts above mentioned, it is our language itself that pleads most consistently in their favor. In its origin, language belongs to an age of the most rudimentary forms of psychology. If we try to conceive of the first conditions of the metaphysics of language, i.e., in plain English, of reason, we immediately find ourselves in the midst of a system of fetishism. For here, the doer and his deed are seen in all circumstances. Will is believed in as a cause in general. The ego is taken for granted. The ego as being and as substance and the faith in the ego as substance is projected into all things. In this way alone, the concept thing is created. Being is thought into and insinuated into everything as cause. From the concept ego alone can the concept being proceed. 
At the beginning stands the tremendously fatal error of supposing the will to be something that actuates a faculty. Now we know that it is only a word. Translator's Note Nietzsche here refers to the concept free will of the Christians. This does not mean that there is no such thing as will, that is to say, a powerful determining force from within. End translator's note. Very much later, in a world a thousand times more enlightened, the assurance, the subjective certitude, and the handling of the categories of reason came into the minds of philosophers as a surprise. They concluded that these categories could not be derived from experience. On the contrary, the whole of experience rather contradicts them. Whence do they come, therefore? In India, as in Greece, the same mistake was made. Quote, we must already once have lived in a higher world, instead of in a much lower one, which would have been the truth. We must have been divine, for we possess reason. Unquote. Nothing, indeed, has exercised a more simple power of persuasion hitherto than the error of being, as it was formulated by the Eleatics, for instance. In its favor are every word and every sentence that we utter. Even the opponents of the Eleatics succumbed to the seductive power of their concept of being. Among others, there was Democritus in his discovery of the atom. Reason in language. Oh, what a deceptive old witch it has been. I fear we shall never be rid of God, so long as we still believe in grammar. 6. People will feel grateful to me if I condense a point of view, which is at once so important and so new, into four theses. By this means, I shall facilitate comprehension, and shall likewise challenge contradiction. Proposition 1. The reasons upon which the apparent nature of this world have been based rather tend to prove its reality. Any other kind of reality defies demonstration. Proposition 2. The characteristics with which man has endowed the, quote, true being, unquote, of things, are the characteristics of non-being, of non-entity. The, quote, true world, unquote, has been erected upon a contradiction of the real world. And it is indeed an apparent world, seeing that it is merely a morallo-optical delusion. Proposition 3. There is no sense in spinning yarns about another world, provided, of course, that we do not possess a mighty instinct which urges us to slander, belittle, and cast suspicion upon this life. In this case, we should be avenging ourselves on this life with the phantasmagoria of another, of a better life. Proposition 4. To divide the world into a 
quote, true, unquote, and a, quote, apparent, unquote, world, whether after the manner of Christianity or of Kant, after all, a Christian in disguise, is only a sign of decadence, a symptom of degenerating life. The fact that the artist esteems the appearance of a thing higher than reality is no objection to this statement. For appearance signifies once more reality here, but in a selected, strengthened, and corrected form. The tragic artist is no pessimist. He says yea to everything questionable and terrible. He is Dionysian. End chapter 3 This recording is in the public domain.